There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Hey, everybody. Uh, Joined today in the Turkey Woods. Yeah. Very near the Turkey Woods with uh, Whit Fosberg, president and CEO of the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. We're actually here on part of our fundraising mission. We are. Where we have the turkey hunt giveaway. We just hunted with the turkey hunt giveaway, people. Yeah, so you guys are very generous in you know, basically allowing us to sweepstakes you off. And two lucky winners came out here and hunted with... Uh, you, Steve, and Yanni, and uh, not fully successful, but I think everyone had a great time, and yeah, spectacular woods around here, Matt Cook's farm, great place. We're still running an 80% success rate. Yep. And just to give you an idea that, you know, in terms of what it did for us, I mean, we had, we raised on this one, 80 plus thousand dollars last year it was over 120. Wow. Yeah, so we're making real money for conservation, and uh so we got to find, we gotta find said, some way to soup it up and get the numbers back up. Well, I think it's, well, remember we did it last year, it was October and then now it's May. So we had a much more truncated season and people who had just entered were asking them to enter again. So I think as we move back out to an annual May cycle, because that's when our dinner is, we had to move it because of COVID. I think you're going to see those numbers get back up. Oh, really? Plus, you know, to the extent that the guys like we're here this time who had a great time, you know, they get the word out and it's pretty cool. I mean, we had... 3,000 plus people enter last time. And these, 
you know, these two won. And, uh, you know, super good guys, Western New York from Buffalo. We talked, me and Yanni were talking about switching it to uh, um, doing a raffle for an elk hunt. Wondering if that would make a huge difference or if it wouldn't make any difference. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, I mean, we could certainly try it and see it. Elk hunt, elk hunt as you guys know, is much harder to put on in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and this one, you know, is pretty darn easy and it's a high success rate. and Very fun. And it's, you know, honestly, you're um, sitting in a ground blind with you or Yanni or sneaking through the woods. I mean, they're going to learn more on this about hunting and about you guys than they would probably in a lot of the elk hunting situations. Mm. They learned I like to take me a little midday nap. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, tell everybody how you got run over by a car. It's a good story. Uh, so I've been bike commuting for 20 years from my office down to our home, and I live just outside the D.C. line in Maryland. And I've never really had a close call, but DC has been doing a really good job of revamping its bike lanes and it's become a very good bike city, but you know, a lot of the passenger cars are not quite used to it yet. And so they moved a bike lane over near the Watergate on Virginia Avenue. So that both Watergate, the Watergate, so that both lanes are on the South side of the road. And uh, so I'm literally, I'm heading home and it's dark and it's how long is your ride? It's about eight miles, nine miles. But uh, so it was dark and rainy and I'm heading into traffic and uh, a woman was running late for a performance at the Kennedy Center and just turned straight into me and my bike goes under the car. I go over the car and, uh, you know, three broken ribs, broken clavicle, broken finger, separated shoulder. But hey, I fly fished last weekend, so uh, (laughs) everything's good. (laughs) Yeah. How long ago did this happen? Uh, February 24th, same day as the Ukraine invasion. Wow. Yep. I would have never known that you're uh, beat up just a couple months ago. Well, part of that's the reason I haven't turkey hunted this year, because I didn't feel like putting a 12-gauge against my broken clavicle and Mm. pulling a trigger was a good idea. Yeah, just shoot left-handed with a red dot. Well, I could try that. I am very right-handed. I thought of you the other day, because, you know, in the Salt Lake City Airport, they have this uh, by the F... Is it Salt Lake? Yeah, the Salt Lake City Airport, by the entrance to the F and G gates... They have this very large uh, panoramic screen, and it's uh, all advertising like Utah. So it's all these like gorgeous scenics and people skiing and mountain climbing. And then they got a fly fisherman, the worst cast I've ever seen. <laughs> Everything's perfect with the. They didn't cast. They did. They just did a horrible job casting the caster. Well, and they should have had you come in there and paste one out for their little video. Well, I mean, the worst honestly, cast on the planet. That's Panoramic I, screen. That's one of the things that made River Run Through It successful is they didn't have, I mean, I guess Brad Pitt learned how to fly fish. But for the really beautiful fly fishing scenes, they brought in this you know, guy from Wisconsin. Yeah, who, what was his name? Uh, Borger. I'm forgetting his first name. His dad was a legend, too. But who's just a world-class you know, fly caster. And so all the sort of scenic fly casting shots you see are with one of the best fly casters in the world, and which makes a big difference. Yeah. No, they should have definitely had you. Uh, okay, a couple things here. Here's a funny one. Someone sent us a tax exchange, and it was someone saying, uh, oh, they were named Katie. I thought it was from your wife. No, different Katie. <laughs> but you know what? A lot, of, like when I was a little kid, everybody named everybody Steve and Jenny. And then five years later, they named them all Katie. How many, like I got more Katie's in my life than I know what to do with. This Here's another Katie. 
she's talking about how uh, her husband was reading my new book, Outdoor Kids in an Inside World, while she was in labor. She was getting out ahead of it, planning ahead. When my wife was in labor, my first kid, I passed out and had to have a nurse come resuscitate me. They got out that big ass, uh, you ever see an epidural needle? Oh, yeah. Listen, man. Seeing that made you pass out? Yeah, because here's the deal, too. Like, my wife did all the, like, all the garbage to have, be like, the all natural, you know, all these classes and all this practicing and shit. And they get there and they, like, do the, they put the little heart monitor on the baby. And they're like, that ain't happening. Pulled out, so she's all upset. But then they pulled off this big, uh, yeah, the biggest needle I've ever seen. It looked like something you'd base a turkey with, like an injector. Yeah. And I just passed right out and woke <laughs> up out in the hallway with my head in the nurse's lap. Yeah. Wow. I could cut your arm off and eat it, Giannis. You wouldn't pass out. But that needle going into my wife's spine made me pass out. Wow. Has that ever happened to you before? No. Uh-uh. You went? No. I like to think I was overtired. <laughs> I got really close. I mean, cause, but we were in like hour 40 or something of labor and had not maybe had some cat naps, but not really. And it's getting very intense, but I'm also like just feeling my body shutting oh, down. Did you say hour 40? Yeah. Yeah. Because we went all natural the whole way and it went long, mega long. Jeez. Yeah. But that includes like, you know, the beginnings. Like where do you where do, where does the timer start? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Of, 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 of labor. So but yeah, I remember just being on my knees, kind of next to the bed with my arms on the bed, and just like looking at the midwife being like, Okay, I just I, I'm I'm think I'm just gonna lay down. I have to lay down just for a little bit. <laughs> just for a little bit. And I was like literally tapping out, but then uh Ina came out. And then we both went and took a nap. I think you should count it from when the water breaks. Hmm. But I'm not a, you know, what do you call them? Maternity nurse or something like that. A mm-hmm. uh, guy wrote in, this is interesting. This is the thing to add to our list of things that make a turkey gobble, which we were heavy duty into for a long time, but kind of got away from it. A Chinook helicopter flying 100 feet off the ground. As the propellers split the air, you know that sound? Says, got every turkey in the woods gobbling. That's good. You know they can adjust the pitch on those and make it louder and quieter. Or if you can set them to like ultra shot gobble setting. Well, no, I was, I happened to, when we went to hunt a a region in Montana, I was talking to a wildlife biologist and he says, well, I won't be able to hook up with you because every morning and evening I'll be flying doing deer counts. I said, well, if you're flying over where I'm going to be, do a couple of low passes and make that <laughs> chopper really sound off and, and give me a couple of free shot gobbles. Um, I saw the chopper, but it, that didn't get any gobbles. You didn't hear any gobbles off it. The, you've been following this, the, the corner crossing, Wyoming corner crossing case? Yeah, yeah, not professionally as much as just as a citizen. Yeah, as a citizen, that's what yep. I'm guessing. Have we updated this yet? So we've been working on, uh, I don't want to get out ahead of myself. A lot more to come on this subject, but just an update. The four, this is a while ago now, the four Missouri hunters who were 
being tried for trespassing over having corner crossed in Wyoming were all found not guilty. However, three of the four hunters acquitted. So they were found not guilty in criminal trespassing, okay? But they had done the same thing at the same ranch. Also, they had done the same thing near there in 2020. So rather than, yeah, we did talk about this. I remember making the parallel. Remember how the juice wasn't in trouble for killing his wife in the waiter Mm -hmm. criminally, but then got in trouble for killing his wife in the waiter, Ron uh, Perlman. Is that his name? Is that his name? Goldman? Just look up real quick. Who do you kill? I will. Ron Perlman. You don't follow this wit? No. I could tell you where I was sitting when he was driving down the road trying to get away from the cops. Oh, you're, you're, bad. you're talking OJ now. Who yeah. did you think I was talking about? Oh, yeah. I, I didn't he said know the Jews. Yeah, yeah. I was sitting in Bo Nicky's Bar in Muskegon County, Michigan, watching OJ drive around in that truck. Bronco. Yeah, that yep. truck would be worth a lot of money right now. Yep. Uh, Goldman, well, I think it was his name, wasn't it? Come on, yeah. This is the easiest web search in the world. It's not. Are you kidding me? <laughs> when you type in OJ, Nicole Brown Simpson, Ron. I hope Phil plays like a ticking clock. I would have solved this 10 times. Ronald Lyle Goldman. There you go. Uh, why was I talking about OJ? Oh, because I feel like we talked about this. Meaning OJ was not in trouble criminally, but he was in trouble civilly. So the... Several of these guys are now facing a civil suit from a landowner from actions taken in 2020. I got a feeling that won't go anywhere. Uh, We often report on really how wildlife issues are so egregiously misreported in the news. And Corinne, who's not here right now, felt that for us to be fair, and, cons- and morally consistent, we would have to point out uh, our own egregious abuse of language in reporting wildlife news. If you go to the meat, we changed it, but if you go to the meateater.com, we had coverage of a fox that snuck into a zoo and killed. How many did he kill? A lot. It's like 26. 25. A fox snuck into the Smithsonian National Zoo and killed 25 flamingos. There's a term for that. It's called, uh, what's it called when they do like an overkill thing? Oh, right. When they just sort of indulge. Surplus, surplus killing. Genocide. No, like when a mountain, no, no. <laughs> like when a mountain lion gets into it like a, pen full of llamas right he yeah just, he just, just can't help himself yeah they get excited yeah like it kills way more than he can eat surplus surplus killing the fox got in there and somehow managed to kill 25 flamingos our headline which we changed i had a, a we had an uproar i had an uproar was wild animal massacres flamingo flock at famous american zoo which now we'll read if you go look Wild animal kills flamingo flock at famous American Zoo. 
applying the same level of uh, maturity to our own reporting as we do the reporting of others. She has a crime scene uh, in red down there, too. Did she not like the use of crime scene for this? That I was informed by Spencer. That was meant to be tongue-in-cheek. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I could read you the text exchange I had with Spencer. Like Spencer always does. Spencer um, is disinclined to admit wrongdoing. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Just, he's not going to give me my uh, my <laughs> my answer from the that last trivia round. Oh, here's another uh, uh, here's here's another example of saving lives. A woman wrote in from British Columbia out hiking uh, with her 12 year old. They got a moose kind of trying to attack them. And the 12-year-old had read our Wilderness Skills book and knew what to do from having read the book. And it worked. Scared the moose off. Did we have a part in there about how to scare a moose off? Yeah, we did. He did it. That's good to know. That's Uh, more common than uh, probably a bear charge, you know? Yeah. This is one that has enormous implications for me and everyone that likes to hunt morels, it's it appear, after uh, like over the years, many people have liked to come forward and claim to have dialed in morel production, and it often winds up being not true or exaggerated. It seems like some Danish biologists, judging by the photos, some Danish biologists have now tamed the last true piece of wildlife in America. The one thing that man couldn't conquer has been conquered. The morale. In a, in a, I mean, look at, they got a shit. What about the huckleberry? A huckleberry is a souped up. A huckleberry is a diminutive blueberry. Right. But I thought they couldn't grow them. Listen, if you talk, you ever talk to, oh, your wife's a botanist. Mm-hmm. Does your wife really buy into like huckleberries being like, it's, it's a little blueberry. Yeah, that's true. It's a, the same way. Like if you take a, a wild strawberry, I know a, a wild strawberry is small and more flavorful. That's right. But strawberries have absolutely been domesticated. That's true. So yeah, if a huckleberry is just a blueberry, then yeah, we're, it's in, been we're, domesticated. we're, we're in the middle of uh, a lot of blueberries right now. And the one thing, that's, that was the main reason that, that and not my view, like morels taste good, but the main thing I liked about them was that they were, they couldn't be conquered. They were unconquerable. And the Danes, who make a hell of a good movie, uh, have figured out cultivating morel mushrooms indoors year-round the danish morel project 40 years of research collaboration with the royal veterinarian agricultural university and the university of copenhagen the growing method of their black morels in a climate controlled environment over a 22 week cycle produces 20 pounds of mushroom per square yard per year so depressing because like when you see a morel you're like someone went out in the woods and picked that son of a bitch you know what i mean found it now it'll be like whitetails morels are gonna have the same problem that whitetails have like when you go into a house and see a giant whitetail 
I'm always like, mm, who knows? You know what I mean? Like, who knows? Who really knows? Is it a white tail or is it not? Like, is it a fake white tail? No, <sighs> so depressing. The reason it was tough to cultivate wild morels is because of an extra step in their life. I'm reading here in their life cycle called the sclerodium, a word I had never heard. Sounds vaguely sexual. Sclerodium. To germinate in spring, the sclerodium can either form new mycelium, the root-like network of underground filaments, or they can form a fruiting body, which is the above-ground mushroom. The people remember, we had a big fight about this word before. I was calling it a macrofructation, but it is a macrofructification. Is the, the, the fruit, like... If you imagine a, the part that makes a morel is like a whole, there's a whole apple tree underground, but now and then it sticks an apple up above the dirt. The mycelium is the apple tree living underground. Um, instead of it producing fruit, aka an apple, it produces a macro fructification, which is the part you cut off with your knife. And the reason you're supposed to come off with a knife and not yank them out of the ground is so you don't damage the mycelium which I don't know if that's, I've never heard if that's actually true or not. So, yeah, the death of one more cool thing. What do you think about that, Whip? Uh, you know, I'm not a mushroom hunter, so I would love to be, but I don't, I want, never had anybody to teach me. It's one of those things that you just don't go blind into. Well, I can teach you right now. Well, if we're, we're sitting here at a the mushroom. table. <laughs> yeah. And then you cut it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's, that's maybe a morel. <laughs> but there are a lot of other ones out there oh, that yeah. you, you don't know about. Yeah, uh, yeah, my my recommendation to budding my uh, my colleagus Michael Michaelphiliacs is um, Michaelphilia, right? That means you love mushrooms. Mm -hmm. um, is stick to the there's like the foolproof four, the failsafe four, the failsafe five, foolproof five. Depending on who you ask, it's like different ones, but there's certain just dead nuts, right? Puff balls don't taste good, really. People act like they do, but they don't. Are always edible. Like all the puff balls, the white puff balls are all edible. Morels, chanterelles are hard to mess up. Oysters are very hard to mess up. Just stick with those. All right. You don't need to be eating like the crazy ones. All right. Uh, I can't remember when. Maybe Corinne will put it in the show notes. We had a episode, a podcast episode called, I believe it was called Farewell Red Wolf. I think. And we had a red wolf expert um, talk about red wolves, red wolf recovery. For the first time in four years, a litter of red wolf pups was born in the wild. Six pups in total, four females and two males, found last month in the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge in northeastern North Carolina. To give you a sense of the decline, 47 red wolves were born in the wild in 2008, down to only four pups 10 years later in 2018. U.S. Fish and Wildlife reported not a single red wolf birth in the past three years, 2019, 2020, 2021, until now. There are an estimated 15 to 17 red wolves in the wild today with another 241 in captivity. You wow, think people, get, you think people get fired up about wolves in in the Rocky Mountains, they get real fired up down there about wolves. Like that it's illegit, that it's not an actual species, that it's like a, mm. that it's like a coyote hybrid, yeah. that 
the feds are sticking it down their throat, that it's conservation dependent. It's all a bunch of bullpucky. On and on and on. If you're interested in that whole debate, uh, check out the episode Farewell, Red Wolf, and you will uh, learn more than you can remember about it. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this SolarStream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow 
so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. All right, Whit, you ready to get into this? Sure, anytime. Fully recovered. Yep, more or less. <laughs> uh, what's going on in Washington, D.C.? Like, what's the, I mean, I know what's going on in Washington, D.C., but what's going on, like, in the bowels of Washington, D.C.? When you get outside of Supreme Court leaks and the war in Ukraine and yep. inflamed partisanship and the January 6th committee. So I'm going to start over on the administrative side, because the big thing right now is implementation of the bipartisan infrastructure law that passed in the fall, uh-huh. which is $1.2 trillion for roads and bridges, traditional infrastructure, but also billions for natural infrastructure. And you know that can range from you know, migration crossings over highways to you know, investing in seed sources for restoration to Everglades restoration. How do, how do they wedge that? Like, I'm glad, mm-hmm. I'm supportive. But how do they wedge that in there? Because we're always annoyed when stuff gets wedged in that we don't want. Yep. But then when stuff gets wedged in that you do want, you're glad about it, but you don't complain. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff, I mean, you, let's use Everglades as an example. Yeah. I mean, we sell, have... Sell me on it as infrastructure. So what we did back in its wisdom in the you know, mid-1900s, the Corps of Engineers channelized Central Florida to have the water go east and west, as opposed to flow south through the Everglades to Florida Bay, that it had done naturally. And that's where you have things like the River of Grass mm-hmm. and you know, those iconic you know, images of yesteryear. So the imp- impacts of that have can, been... Can, can we dive mm-hmm. into that little yeah. story for a second? Yeah. I just want people to make sure. We, we had a podcast about this a long, long time ago. But um, I don't think people can, people that aren't, haven't spent time on there can fully grasp what that was like. Yeah, so you have an incredibly you know, flat terrain that runs essentially across from mid to southern, all the way down to Florida Bay that is one giant wetland. It's the, the gradient is crazy. I forget what it is. We talked about it in that podcast, but it's like an inch over like a mile yeah. or a foot over a mile or something yeah. like that. So the water would but a many it's like a many, many miles wide river. Yes. And shallow and ecologically incredibly rich. But what it would do is take polluted water you know, historically from developed areas in northern Florida. And by the time it reached Florida Bay, it would be cleaned up naturally. And Florida Bay was, you know, one of the best fisheries in the world. And then what happened after they channelized that and sent the river water east and west is you had one Florida Bay was starved of fresh water, as was a bunch of the Everglades. I like to point out to people, just so they know, um, and talk about the Everglades, a lot of times in history we skip, like, like, for instance, now, we're dealing with all the dams on the Columbia system, Mm -hmm. right? And someone's like, you could, you could be, you could have the idea that someone built th- those dams just to screw salmon, right? But it was they're generating electricity, and some people point to the fact that we that one of the you know when people like to define like how we won World War II, one of the things is we could smelt aluminum and make and produce aircraft faster than anybody. Yep, because we had all that electricity. Yep. So at a time, it was like a it was a deliberate thing, and then you move on, and then you deal with mistakes you made. But they right. had that in the Everglades. They had that flood 
I don't know what it killed thousands, the thousands of people. But it was even more than that. It wasn't so much the you know, impacts of you know, people on flooding. It was you know, largely you know, mosquitoes. It was you know, just how to get the water out of there faster in general. To, to, so, to, quote, so could, to quote, reclaim it. Right. So you could then do you know, more sustainable or more you know, reliable agriculture in those mm-hmm. areas. You could have housing developments that didn't flood every other year. Got it. And so the so downside. So that was at least a lot. It wasn't someone being like, I got an idea to really mess things up. Right. But I mean, you know, at that time, you know, the Corps of Engineers across the country, you know, channelized rivers, you know, basically made them move faster, you know, got rid of wetlands. And we're over time, we recognized the, you know, the fallacy of that whole model, mm-hmm. which was we needed those wetlands. We needed the curves in the river, which slowed down the velocities to mitigate the floods. Yeah. And, but we didn't really understand that at the time we were doing all this. We could do it because we could. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. I always wish I could go back, and I'm sure you could if you, you know, a good historian could go back, is who were the, at, at the time they were, I'm sure they were labeled as lunatics and alarmists. Who were the people that were saying, you know what, man, if you do that, right? Yep. Those voices are lost. Not lost to history, probably, but lost to popular history, right? Yeah, but they look pretty prescient now. Like the guy, yeah. the guy on the Columbia River that was being like, you know, if you do this, my feeling is that you will doom all of those salmon species to extinction. And people were probably like, ah, you tree hugger. Well, and at that time, you could even say, well, we'll just build a hatchery, which is what they did. <laughs> right. And, you know, so that was the way they dealt with it there. But in Florida, you know, we've seen the impacts because now you have the, the huge dead zones and, you know, red tides and algae blooms coming off the east and west side for all this water, polluted water being shunted out. And, you know, so that's having huge economic impacts, you know, in addition to the decline of Florida Bay and the Everglades and, you know, the various species. So we're in the process of restoring that to make it work the way, you know, nature was supposed to make it work. So is the, is the infrastructure logic, and again, I support mm-hmm. the decision, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get to the lot is the infrastructure logic that it was like a core of engineers infrastructure project that created an issue yep. meaning yep. it was it was like earth moving yep. construction dam building putting roads on tops of dams and it's not going to get fixed naturally we're mm-hmm. going to have to go back and re-engineer that system yeah and so that's what we're doing in south florida does we're that doing become it- a core project core of engineers oh yeah absolutely okay yeah and money's running through their budget but also a bunch of other budgets and, but that's just a classic example of natural infrastructure. Another would be, you know, in the South Louisiana, you know, reconnecting, you know, the Mississippi River with this delta. Yeah. Because we've basically put up huge levees and move all that water and all the sediment that's coming down the Mississippi out into the Gulf of Mexico. And so you have this huge land loss in Louisiana, where literally South Louisiana is sinking. Help people understand why why the land is vanishing. Well, because historically the Mississippi River would braid out as soon as it you know got down past New Orleans that area, and you know all that sediment would then settle and maintain you know this vast area of wetlands, and that vast area of wetlands, in addition to being good ecologically, is what protected you know places like New Orleans from hurricanes, and you know tidal surges that would come in. Mm-hmm. And as we lose that, we expose, you know, the people, you know, to far greater risk. And we saw that obviously with Katrina and other events. So what we're trying to do now is to actually break some of those levees along the lower Mississippi River to allow the river to spread back out, to allow that sediment to dump where it's supposed to be, 
to you know keep you know try to end the subsidence that's happening right now, mm. and then also create a natural system that will protect you know flood surge. Uh, that's easy to see on infrastructure mm-hmm. because it was one of the main reasons you channelize the river. Yep, was to make it predictable for navigation. Correct. Like if you go back and read um, Mark Twain. Uh, his book about the river captains. Um, you had to have like a guy that knew how to navigate that river back in those days, which was constantly changing. Um, you couldn't run deep. You couldn't run deep vessels. You had to have a uh, very detailed, constantly evolving knowledge of how to get boats up the Mississippi Channel because it changed all the time, and they just made it a straight shot, right, for shipping. So that's easy to see on infrastructure. Yep. I mean, nobody's really talking about that main shipping channel, you know, changing that. Yep. That is what it is I got now. you. But as you get down past the, you know, New yep. Orleans, yep. you know, that is where we need to recreate those wetlands. Now, another example is things like, you know, the crossings over highways. Oh, I got one more yep. question about the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Is, is the primary energy... The, the political energy to start rehabilitating the Delta um, is the primary energy coming from a public safety regarding hurricanes or is the primary energy coming from the conservation community? All of the above. And I think that largely this is being funded through, you know, basically BP oil spill dollars. Okay. So there's you still know, some it, of that that hasn't been spent. There's still some of that and it's going to be spent for several more years. That's going to be, you know, obviously, you know, kicked up through the infrastructure spending. But no, it's, you know, I think they recognize that it's, you know, a critical to basically, you know, protect New Orleans and the people that live along there. There's also recognition that we're destroying that ecosystem, which is phenomenal, you know, fishery, waterfowl habitat, you name it. Mm-hmm. So I think everybody's come together. And this is one of those things like it's mom and apple pie in Louisiana, you know, by and large, that everybody agrees this is the right thing to do. But that's been a sea change in people's attitudes. Yeah, you know, where we have a long history of controlling nature. And now we're trying to get nature to actually play a role in protecting us. Yeah. Uh, just another example of infrastructure would be that, you know, the part, there's a pilot program in the bill that was passed in November of $350 million for expanding highway overpasses and underpasses for wildlife. And you see that in places like, you know, down in, you know, Trappers Point in Wyoming and where they've, you know, done that already. And they're incredibly successful. I mean, animals use them. They reduce accidents with people and death. And, uh, you know, so, and it's just, you know, it's, as we think about a changing climate and animals needing to move, I mean, having those basically intact migration corridors is more important than ever. So we're going to see a big influx of that. And it's not just, you know, for mule deer and elk and, you know, pronghorn in Wyoming. You know, this is going to be you know, for reptiles and amphibians in New Jersey, getting under roads as they move in their spring migrations too. So it's a different, it's a pilot program and it's going to be around the country and it's a chance to show that it really works Mm -hmm. and to expand that. But this is just a different way of thinking about traditional roads and bridges. And we have so much better data today about, you know, how animals move than we did even a decade ago. You can be much more targeted. Much more targeted. And you know where to put that overpass. And you know it's going to be used, and that's got to be combined with some fencing to push them into there. But you know that is you know that is a solution to a lot of problems because 
you know, if you look at a lot of the migration maps, they end right at, you know, I-5 or whatever it is in Wyoming. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. Walk me through on, on those three examples, mm-hmm. unless you're ready to move away from the infrastructure. Like before we no, leave I mean, the I, infrastructure. I, so I, before we leave infrastructure, here's the challenge. So we have, you know, the billion, billions of dollars for conservation in that infrastructure package. And we have agencies that are not equipped to handle that level of money. And getting it on the ground is going to be a huge challenge. Well, first of all, we've had years of basically bashing the federal government and talking about we need to downsize federal government. We've had attrition from all the natural resource agencies over the years. So you need to have an infrastructure in place, you know, to apply these funds, make sure they get on the ground you know, in a reasonable way, because nobody wants this money to be wasted. Nobody wants it just to sit in an agency's bank account and not get spent. So part of the challenge here, and we have a working group of our various partner organizations that is working on this, is identify, you know, places where this money can get put to get it on the ground quickly. For example, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, you know, which is handling a lot of the BP oil settlement funds, is done, has a 30 plus year track record of doing great conservation work and knows how to get money on the ground quickly with very low overhead, you know, supersize the programs there to get that money on the ground. After Hurricane Sandy in New Jersey, they created a coastal resiliency fund, managed a lot of the Department of Commerce funds that came into that to basically rebuild, you know, wetland habitats, barrier islands, all the rest, and incredibly successful, matched by private dollars, matched by state dollars, use that same sort of model here you know, to get the money out of the agencies to a group, to an organization that knows how to do grants, that knows how to monitor, knows how to evaluate, and knows how to get that money out quickly. And that's what's happening right now. So they just did an announcement a short while ago, a billion dollars going to National Fish and Wildlife Foundation for a host of different projects, terrestrial, marine, yeah, you name it. And those are, you know, RFPs are on the street right now. So I think that's the big challenge is, you know, how do we make sure that all this money has been appropriated you know, actually gets to good projects? And if it doesn't, you can see a change in administration that coming in saying, well, you have all this unused money, we're going to rescind it and pull mm. it back out. And nobody wants that to happen. Yeah. So I think that's a lot of the challenge right now. Uh, explain to me how, if you look at the role of TRCP and other players, when they're sh- when when they're shaping what the infrastructure package will look like okay and they're, they're building they're, they're they're creating legislation and they have to keep in mind that it has to be passable right so it's not just like a wish list it's it has to be somewhat pragmatic to get the votes and it has to be signed by the president um at, at what point do, do does the conservation community insert themselves into the dialogue to say if we're going to be spending money on infrastructure we need to be like spending it in these ways and how do you keep it in the end from all the work just evaporating so it was very clear early on that infrastructure was one of those few areas that democrats and republicans could agree on you know trump talked about it you know obama talked about it biden talked about it on the campaign trail So back during the middle of the Trump administration, we started gearing up a campaign with our partner organizations. The way we're organized, we have 61 different groups under our broad umbrella. And then they mobilize into working groups on particular issues like infrastructure. And so we may have 20 different groups on this particular issue. 
And so we created a website years ago called Conservation Works for America that talked about putting people back to work through conservation projects and the benefits that would do for infrastructure, for natural habitats, for hunting and fishing. And based on that platform, then that basically gave us a seat at the table early on as it started getting negotiated. And so then as you know, it became more real under when Biden came in, you know, then we were prepared the whole series of different road programs we thought needed investment. And, you know, in, they were happy to have our support on this. And because they were trying to make it bipartisan, the hunting and fishing community tends to lean Republican. And so I think they valued our input and participation. And plus, it was the right thing to do. It met their you know, climate objectives, met their jobs objectives, and met their infrastructure objectives. And uh, it was something that you know, was, frankly, pretty easy to get at the end of the day. So at some point, someone comes in, they're like, I got an idea for you. Yep. Huh. And plus, you know, think about the groups that are underneath the partnership. I mean, you have Ducks Unlimited, Trout Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. I mean, these guys have been doing on-the-ground projects for decades. And they know what works. They know it doesn't work. They know, the impl- you know some of the you know, basic impediments to getting money on the ground, be it you know, NEPA analysis, be it matching fund requirements, things like that, that all need to be tweaked if you're going to get this stuff out and get it on the ground quickly. So there's a tremendous amount of expertise there. And this is, you know, this is right in those groups' wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And what we do is, you know, we take advice from them and then we coalesce, coalesce around the lobbying, communication strategy, and try to push that through inside the Beltway. And then if we're successful, like we were this time, then there's a buttload of money that goes back out to these groups to actually put projects on the ground. Yeah. If you go back to, um, if you go back to uh, the Great American Outdoors, mm-hmm. how, like, what is implita- implementation looking like there? You have some of the same challenges. Uh, you know, so it, just to remind your listeners, you know, the Great American Outdoors Act had two big components. One was permanent and full funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, $900 million a year for projects that conserve sensitive habitats, that expand access, you know, that they could be you know, fee acquisition, it could be conservation easements, it runs the gamut. Uh, that is only one time in the history of the program, it was passed in 1965, I think, have we had full funding of $900 million. So again, we have some of the same challenges with the agencies. The appraisal process is a real problem here because the way that the you know, federal appraisal process works is they'll look at a, like a kick-ass you know, elk or mule deer property in a place like Montana, but they appraise it on its ability to grow corn or soybeans. Mm-hmm. And so you have these ridiculously low valuations that don't meet with today's, I mean, you look at a hall and hall brochure or something like that, and these amenity ranches that have great habitat are going for insane amounts of money. They have nothing to do with how much corn and soybean they can produce. Yeah, I've, I've heard frustrations from agency people about that, that, you know, people should be clear that, that and, it, and it makes sense, and, the, and, it, and it seems like a good thing. Um, that the government can't just buy in, in, like insanely priced pieces of yep. property. Like there has to be some sort of objective understanding of its value. Yep. To and keep, that's and that's in law. Yeah. To yep. keep to keep taxpayers from getting screwed by someone making like horrible financial decisions, right? Yep. Like paying a hundred million dollars for something that's worth ten million bucks. You just screwed taxpayers over. So it's supposed to, it's supposed to have some discipline, but it it has it it, it doesn't keep up to speed. Or someone explained me they're still looking at like like 
stocking rates of cows and yeah. calves on places that are absolutely going to sell as recreational wildlife habitat. Right. They're going to sell as recreational properties. Yeah, our, the values have changed since the 1950s. And you're or not 60s. you can't you're not competing in you're not competing in the modern era because it's not a thing where you're looking at contemporary comps. Right. And you have a landowner that wants to do the right thing like make this public. You know, and but it's really hard for them to do if they're getting off, you know, 25% yeah. of you know, what they would get on the open market. Yeah. And so they're just not going to do it. Yeah, landowner might be like it's got miles of trout stream, hundreds of elk, antelope. We see black bears. And the feds are sitting there like, it'll, it's got 13 acres of irrigated alfalfa yeah. and support three cow-calf pairs per yeah. unit, you know, or whatever. And some, yeah. some Texan comes in, he's like, I'll take it. Right. <laughs> so, you know, basically, know, we're, having know to deal with, we're having to deal with that issue. So that's in the process being changed you know as we speak and hopefully that gets done pretty quickly but then you also have a sort of a different how, orientation how do they even the like when you look at that like, it's being changed but how is it being like what specifically are they changing i think the federal the methodologies i don't think this has to go through congress i think this is administrative act okay and again i've got people on our staff that know far more about this than i do but what they basically need to do is you know publish a new appraisal system you know that reflects modern values and that goes through a you know, rulemaking process. It takes a little bit of time. And so that whole process is underway right now. In fact, we had Tommy Boudreau, who's number two at the Department of the Interior, talk to our collective groups last week about his personal frustration with this, but the fact that it is moving forward and as fast as they can make it go. Yep. And just Washington doesn't do things quickly. I've heard other stories of landowners' families that wanted to try to move ranch land into public access mm -hmm. and just grew to be very frustrated by the, the time. Yeah. The time. I mean, some landowners can like, afford I, that I, I can't like, I, yeah. I can't do this for three years. Right. No, I totally agree. It's a very legitimate concern. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's economic so, uncertainty. Who knows what the market's going to be like? Like, I can't wait for you guys. Well, and also the other thing about the great American outdoors act, the land and water conservation fund, part of that, is it really also has a little bit different orientation. I mean, we got a provision in that that requires that at least 3% of the funds or upwards of $25 million annually be used for projects that expand public access. Okay. So instead of so a So you 20, can measure it yeah. on that merit. Yeah. So instead of a 25,000-acre you know, Plum Creek holding someplace that you know, maybe buy under Land and Water Conservation Fund, which may still be a great project, this also encourages the agency to look at maybe that half section someplace, you know, that may not be worth a whole lot by itself, but it opens up 10,000 acres of national forest behind it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a different way of thinking even within the agencies that they look at this money and how it's going to get spent. Because it's not just big landscape level acquisitions. I mean, it's conservation easements, it's access easements, it's, you know, small fee purchases. But it's hard to picture getting someone, getting a team of people with, who can be nimble make quick assessments, quick intelligent assessments, and be nimble enough to participate in the market right now. So that's why you have the NGO component. So you have groups like Nature Conservative, Trust for Public Land, Conservation Fund, that have done a lot of the early legwork in putting together the deals mm -hmm. and making the public justification and getting the landowner trust. And then they're the ones that are doing the primary interface with the federal government 
saying, lining this up, saying this is queued up, it's ready to go. Got it. And so does, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation does some stuff. Elk like Foundation that, is a yeah. perfect example. Yep. Like they'll work deals where ranchers who may even be members of RMEF come to RMEF and be like, we'd love to get our yep. place protected. But yeah. yeah. And then they become the interface with the federal agency or the state agency or whatever it might be that is, you know, would take ownership or hold the conservation easement. There are other times where these groups will actually buy the area in fee just because the landowner is facing you know, a real crunch from cash and this can't wait with the understanding that then they'll flip it to the federal agency. Mm-hmm. But you know, that puts a big burden on the nonprofit because all of a sudden they're out however many million dollars that they're having to sit there and wait for the federal government to get in its act together. And there's probably always some apprehension that they'll change their mind. Sure. I mean, and that's the risk of the game. But the groups like you know, Conservation Fund, Trust for Public Land, I mean, these are pros. They've been doing this for years. I think they have a pretty good sense about you know, this is going to happen or not. And now that you have a guaranteed stream of federal funding through Land and Water Conservation Fund, it's far more certain this is going to happen at some point. The old days, the real concern was, okay, we'll, we'll go ahead and buy this. But let's say Congress, instead of giving $900 million, only decides to give it $100 million. And that's competing with projects all around the country. Then you can really be screwed. Are they having uh, Are they having a hard time finding projects on the right timeline? No. no. Plenty of projects out there. There's a backlog of projects that are ready to go. The issue is more on the just the administrative side, getting the you know, appraisal process fixed, getting the people within the agencies to deal with three times as much volume of transactions as they've been doing historically, which means staffing up to a certain degree. So those are the bigger challenges. Now, you also have in the Great American Outdoors Act a $9.5 billion you know, trust fund to address the maintenance backlog on public lands. You know, national parks, national forests, that could be campgrounds, could be visitor centers, could be roads, could be trails. So, you know, that they're facing a lot of the same problems there too about capacity. Because if you have an agency where you, know, you have a lot less you know, people than you had a few years ago, and all of a sudden you have this money to go do all this stuff, it's hard sometimes to get that money on the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, you're not going to go out there and build that visitor center. You're going to contract with somebody else. But you've got to do that due diligence on the front end. You've got to go put out a bid. You've got to go through the RFP process and make sure you're, again, not getting screwed because this is taxpayer money you're using. Yeah. Uh, explain the MAP Act. So MAPLAND uh, is an act that just passed. So, so it's, MAP, it's M-A-P-L-A-N-D, MAPLAND. Yep, okay. yep, which is making our public lands accessible act. It's I'm probably botching it. It is an acronym. It's an acronym. Yeah, but it's a nice acronym, MAPLAND. So this is this just passed the House and the Senate, signed by Biden two weeks ago. Uh, unanimous vote out of the Senate. Oh, is yeah. that right? Yep. And what this does is... Unanimous. Unanimous, yeah. So I knew it passed overwhelming, but I didn't know it was unanimous. Yeah, it was overwhelming in the House. I think we had like nine people that voted against it. And then well, unanimous uh, in the Senate. Uh, even though you haven't explained it to people yet, mm-hmm. I'm just curious now. The nine that didn't like it, what didn't, what didn't they like about it? Anti, just anti-federal government. Um, you know, it's going to cost some dollars. They could you know, sort of fall on the taxpayer concern. It's basically people that don't like conservation. Yeah. And don't so like out of the spending money, for out it. of the almost 400 people hanging around the house, yeah. yeah, nine didn't like it. Yeah, exactly. And then every senator liked it. Yeah. So anyway, what it does, this goes back to the projects we did with Onyx that identified landlocked public lands. And, you know, in that process, we went through a multi-year and a series of different reports, and anybody can read them on our website. 
but identify all these lands that the public owns that the public can't get access to because there's no legal access right. Well, in the process of doing that, we discovered that there are a whole lot more legal access rights that we know about. And Joel Webster, who runs our Western lands or Western conservation programs, you know, he and the folks at Onyx. That best... dude is one of the sharpest minds. Oh, yeah. When it comes to I mean, I, I land designations, land access. Yeah. Holy shit. I mean, he is, uh, he like, I think it was like our little mad scientist in the back room concocting new schemes to protect public land to expand access. And when I'm talking to him, I'm always ideas. like, how in the world does he know all that? Yeah. Well, he <laughs> like, lived... dry, I'm so distracted by wondering how he, like, yeah, has. I mean, he lives it. So, I mean, you know, hardcore public land hunter. Yeah, you'd be you like, know, you know, when you see like a railroad crossing and it says something or another yep. on the map, but then next to that it says something or another about DOT yep, or whatever, yep. he'll be like, oh, that's because. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no shit, really? Yeah. Yeah, so, but talking <laughs> back to the map land, I mean, part of this process with Onyx, they discovered that the agencies, and this is really Forest Service and BLM, you know, had you know, somewhere around 50,000 negotiated access easements, of which you know, somewhere around 5,000 actually been digitized. So you, uh, you knew about them through a public process. So if you're using your Onyx or something like that, it would show up. The rest of them are in boxes in the basements of ranger districts someplace. And we asked the forest like service. In like, do you mean literally? Literally. Do you mean, no, uh, that if the building burnt down? Yes. Well, as it is right now, nobody, the people that are there, these may have been negotiated 50 years ago. People that are there now have no idea about them. A landowner may have put up a gate someplace Long time ago, nobody really noticed. Everyone assumed it's been off limits forever. Yeah, and he sold it three times. Yeah. So we asked the Forest Service, and this is Forest Service is probably the worst. I mean, they've got thirty-five thousand, you know, access easements of which, you know, far less than five thousand have been actually digitized. So we asked them how long it would take you guys to get this stuff basically into a twenty-first century format, and they're like, "Well, our current levels of funding probably between ten and twenty years." And so what we did was, you know, Joel and his team drafted up this bill that would give the agencies the money they need, give them a two-year you know, window to get this all done, tell them to get together to come up with a, you know, a common data set, because, of course, the agencies also have their own you know, process and their own data standards, and get it done. And so, you know, that's what passed Congress. And I think this is going to be a real game changer for a lot of the public land access because then if you have your handheld GPS, your Onyx, your whatever your format might be, you're going to see you know, what it, where we have legal access rights. And there are going to be a bunch of stuff showing up that we had no idea was there. Uh, we have a mutual acquaintance. Okay. Uh, his name is Carl. Yes. He recently had a very interesting... I'd like to have him explain this himself in, in long form. I'm letting it... I'm not gonna talk about where it is. We had a very interesting discovery in the Midwest, where he's looking at maps and sees that there's this block of state land, and there is a hundreds of yard long, a hundreds of yard long strand on a map marked of like what appears to be state land that's literally feet wide. Mm -hmm. he, he's a lands expert. Yep. So he noticed something that maybe he wouldn't have noticed. He goes over to have a look, and it is the windrow, the windrow between two crop fields. 
which is piled up with rock as the over the years farmers kick up rock throw it in the windrow it's rock and briar but it's a windrow and he goes and does some research and it turns out this is owned by the state he goes and has a chat with one of the neighboring land landowners who assures him that it's been closed right uh he goes to the state office and they're like that hasn't been closed um you can definitely use it there hasn't been a trail there but it was meant to be and in fact we don't i don't know what happened that guy has asked us to close it we don't really know what that means <laughs> yep and he <laughs> walks down that son of a bitch and gets down there and guess what he finds all kinds. Of, this is a place you can't bait. All kinds of bait piles. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, and, and so he now has been, and then he parked, and, and he can legally park on the right of way. And he does this trudge. He says it takes him about an hour and a half to go down this thing to get to this lake that's otherwise inaccessible. And the guy leaves um, notes. I'm calling the sheriff. He goes and says, let's call the sheriff together. Well, I'm not calling him right now, but. <laughs> <laughs> I, just I, a crazy story, I, man. I don't think that's isolated. It's not federal, but it's state, right? Yeah. But it's not isolated. It's not isolated. I think you're going to find, as we do this process and get this implemented, you're going to find those all over the place. Mm-hmm. And as you, you talked about corner crossings a little bit, I mean, this all sort of plays into, you know, one way to deal with overcrowding in a bunch of our public lands is to expand access to the public lands that nobody has access to right now. And Mapland right. is one tool to help us do that. And it's not infringing on private property rights because we own these. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe the new landowner doesn't know that, but this is going to help, I think, a long term with reduced conflicts with private landowners because, you know, this is the way it is. It's going to be digitized. Everyone knows where it is and everyone knows where it isn't. That's the thing I think people need to... Um not need to it's the i'd like people to recognize is it's instead of the public take like instead of the public going and sort of like taking something from a private landowner it's that and i'm not saying it's in effect the private landowner has taken something from the public correct the private landowner is utilizing as their own something that isn't theirs so if you if you believe in this whole like, you know, this whole idea of a property rights and stuff, we're just, we're simply, the public is simply asserting its property rights. And it's saying we, the, right. the public, have access to certain things. We'd like to clarify what it is and utilize it. And there may be no malice on the landowner's part. I mean, as no, you mentioned, it may have you know, changed hands two or three times since this was negotiated. He had probably had no idea, he or she. And it's got to be a rude, it's a rude awakening. You can, like, I can easily get in the head of someone who has been on some chunk of ground for, you know, 20 years, and all of a sudden someone says, hey, you know. Hate to break it to you, but. (laughs) It turns out your driveway is a road, (laughs) you know? Yep. Yeah. Of course you're going to, of course you're going to resist. No one's going to be like, oh, well, in that case, welcome. Yeah but it is what it is.
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this SolarStream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. What's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. 
There's a bunch of other stuff we're working on right now. There's a bill that's pending in the Senate called Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And that's a slam dunk, right? Oh, no. No. No, this is a, you know, I mean, it's we've got 16 Democrats, 16 Republicans on it. And this is in the Senate. So, I mean, it's got good bipartisan support. But it, it's going to cost, you know, $1.4 billion a year. And any time that you have something that's that expensive, there's going to be opposition to it. We know that. And it's not going to be something that sails through 100 to nothing. Huh. But, you know, the rationale behind this bill... But you, you have a split number of Democrats and Republicans supporting it. Yeah. But that's you know, still 30 or 32 out of 100. And yeah, well, we're did, Have this. the other ones not heard about it yet? Oh, they may have heard about it. They just haven't signed on as co-sponsors. When they I signed on as co-sponsors, we know we got their vote. And we're, we've been very deliberate of making sure that for every Democrat we take, get, we're going to get a Republican to keep this bipartisan going the way through. And you got how many? 32 right now. In the, how many of them have you talked to? We've talked to all of them. Well, you only got 18 to go, and you're halfway, and you're at the... Sure, but you also have the filibuster in the Senate, which means you have to get above 60. Oh. And, uh, yeah, so, but anyway, I think we can get it done, but it's not a slam dunk by any means. But what this bill would do is invest this money, $1.4 billion a year, to states to work on essentially non-game wildlife issues, and with the goal of keeping species off the Endangered Species Act list. And you think about, you know... The state agencies, which have primary jurisdiction for managing wildlife, you know, somewhere in that 60% plus of their annual budgets come from sportsmen. You know, through you know, the excise taxes that go back out to the states for you know, fishing tackle, ammunition, guns, archery equipment, motorboat fuel, all the rest, and the licenses that we all pay and the tags we buy and all that. So sportsmen are basically paying for wildlife management for years. And some of that, you know, is understandably the agencies use to deal with things, butterflies, bats, you know, whatever the non-game species might be, but it's not a sustainable model. Mm -hmm. And several years ago, the states developed what they call their wildlife action plans, which is what they would need to deal with all these species that are in decline that will probably eventually get listed and, you know, cost a ton of money to recover. So how do we get ahead of that? And they added up, you've added up the 50 states and the territories, and it came out to $1.4 billion a year, which is why we came up with that number. So in this, you know, it's a penny-wise, you know, this is a good investment to save a lot of money down the road because, you know, if it, as we say, if it, it species gets down to a red wolf status mm -hmm. and we're spending however many tens of millions of dollars, you know, to try to recover that species it would have made a whole lot more sense before it got to that level, and Red Wolf may be a bad example, to spend, you know, to spend that money in advance to make sure that these species aren't you know, collapsing. And plus, we're really talking about habitat management. So we're talking about you know, projects, if you think about something like the sagebrush steppe, you know, sage grouse is obviously an iconic species there, but we also have 350 other species that are not really game species that occupy that exact same ecosystem. So honestly, the reason we've been pushing this as much is one, we think that we need that investment, but two, this is gonna help game species as well because we're really gonna be investing in habitats and not just single species management. So we think it makes a ton of sense. Um, we hope we're gonna be able to get it done this year, but you know, it's, again, I think it's gonna be a fairly heavy lift. There's a couple things I wanna to touch on. Um, I wanna back up a little bit. We talked about Great American Outdoors Act Okay, in the Land and Water Conservation Fund. I feel like a lot of people are sitting there being like, where is all this money coming from? 
I just want to point out, we didn't cover this, but in the case of the Great American Outdoors Act, which is funding LWCF, Land and Water Conservation Fund funding, um, that was a deal struck when? About 1965. Off- okay, in 1965, it was that. When, when an oil company is leasing from the American people offshore oil field land. So it's like you get out, how many miles you got to get off the coast before you're out of state water? Three miles. Okay. So if you, if you, let's say you live in California and you get in your boat and start heading West, you are in California water for a few miles and then you enter United States water. And that goes, I don't know, quite a ways. 200 miles, 200 miles. So that's land owned by the American people. Someone's going to go drill for oil. A for-profit venture is going to go drill for oil. Well, they're striking a deal with the American people saying, like, we would like to lease this oil site from the American people to drill oil, to sell oil. That is where this revenue comes from. It's a, it's a percentage of the lease fee. So we're saying, as, as Americans, you know, like our representatives are saying, okay, you're going to pay us uh, X to use our land to draw oil from. And we're going to say that a percent, like how many percent of that? Do you remember what it is? Uh, I can't remember. It was, you know, it's, the percentages would have changed by now because it was a set dollar figure. Okay. 900 million. Okay. So they're saying of that money, this amount, like of the money you're paying to us, America, we're pledging to spend this amount on access conservation projects. So this isn't like money that is just getting pulled out of thin air. No, this was a deal that was struck back then that allowed the Outer Continental Shelf to be opened up for oil and gas development. And then the oil industry in return agreed to pay into this fund to pay for conservation on land. Yeah. And it was a you know a great model and it's worked well. The exception that the legislation was written in a fashion that didn't make that funding until the Great American Outdoors Act passed mandatory. So every year Congress would see that $900 million and decide, well... Let's not appropriate maybe nine hundred million. Let's do four hundred million, even though we were supposed to, or one hundred million. Yeah, Yeah. but it wasn't protected from that. So Congress arrayed it for all sorts of other purposes, Mm. and that was what got fixed in the Great American Outdoors Act. Yeah. Now, obviously, nine hundred million dollars today is not worth the same as it was in nineteen sixty-five. It's still a lot of money, but it's a fraction of what it was originally intended to be. Yeah. It would have been better if it was a percentage. Oh, it would have been. But, you know, listen, I'm happy we get $900 million, yeah. know, dedicated for this because it's a whole lot better than what we were getting. In the case of, uh, let, let's take this Recovering America's Wildlife Act situation. So here, here's the thing that is helpful to consider. I remember I, I was talking with a policy guy that worked on grizzly bear policy. And in the lower 48, grizzly bears are um, listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. And someone was, was telling me that the state of Idaho, okay, the state of Idaho, th- through the Fish and Game Agency, which is funded by hunters and anglers, they spend half as much on every annually they spend half as much on every grizzly bear that lives in Idaho as they do on every kid enrolled in public school. I would be skeptical of that you know, no. number, but hmm, okay. All right. There's a couple. No. Uh, listen, I, I got it through the New York Times fact checker. All right. Okay. 
And they don't let anything through. Run, run it, run it again. The, the Tell state me again. of Idaho. Yep. Was spending. Uh, what what they they they're spending nine. They they it cost them like nine thousand bucks per year, per kid, for public school. Mm-hmm. If that was, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like that. The state of Idaho is spending four thousand five hundred dollars on every grizzly bear in that state. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. Sorry, so That's you're not talking said. about cumulative total. No, I'm yeah, saying they, they spend half yeah. as much per bear yeah. as they do per kid to put them in public school. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. To put into context, like what it costs, what managing, like what it costs to manage imperiled species. It's expensive to manage imperiled species. Um, so when you get into this question of is there a better funding mechanism than, than having a state, which is get all of its funding through hunter angler participation or excise taxes on sporting goods to to have this like chunk of money spread so thin as like you're saying as we have increasing numbers and sure to have more species make the endangered species list right it's at a point you're going to be like we at a state level we can't do it anymore i know there's fun there's like federal mechanisms too but at a point you're going to be that we're trying to, and I know the state fish and game agencies are encouraged not to think this way anymore, where they look at like that they have a clientele. Their clientele being like hunters and anglers. Right. And hunters and anglers want to see lots of elk, lots of turkeys, lots of trout. Oh, just well-managed resources. Yeah. And yep. so they're like, I want my money. Like I'm paying the money because I want, I like to hunt. I want you to take my money and, and make sure that these things that have all this public support are viable and you don't have people buying butterfly stamps. Stamps. Yeah. So there's a there's a hole. Huge hole. In in how we look at this stuff. Yep. Yeah, and I just think that you know, triage is not where we want to get. We want to protect the ecosystems that maintain these species that are on the decline. You know, so they never get to that triage situation where it costs so much money. And that's yeah. what this whole back's about. Yeah. And even if you're not a butterfly lover, I can just about guarantee you that if it's good for the butterflies, it's probably going to be good for your turkeys and deer too. Yeah. Oh, indeed. There aren't many um there aren't many habitat moves that turn out being bad for something. Yep. Uh, like, there's not many things. cases where you go help one thing. No. And it turns out being bad for something else. No, that's right. Uh, a couple other things is worth noting. Uh, we just had a big milestone on striped bass on the east, which is the number one marine recreational fish in America. And oh, you know, I didn't been, know that. Oh yeah, yep. Is that in terms of as in terms of angler hours? Angler hours, yep. you know, economic impact. Gotcha. Um, and it's huge. I mean, it goes all North Carolina all the way up pet through Maine. I've never even caught one. You oh, caught one? Awesome mm-hmm. fish. And it's good to eat too, right? Oh, great yeah, to eat. Yeah. And it's it's really you know unlike something like a bonefish or a tarpon, it was a it's an everyman's fish. Yeah, you catch it from the beach. It's blue blue collar. I mean, you can catch them from the beach. You don't have to have a fancy boat. You know, you can catch them on a fly. You can catch. I used them to walk down to the herring. beach in Rhode Island, walk up and down the beach till I saw a bunch of them. Yep. Smack, slash. Then you catch yep. out there and you actually catch a whole bunch of bluefish. Oh yeah. But now and then, wham. Yep. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> so anyway, the uh, striped bass, you may remember, you know, had, there was a full moratorium back in the 1980s. They were so overfished. Like, it got bad. It got really bad. So, you what know, no recreational how bad fishing. It got? Oh, overfishing. 100%. I mean, there was, you know, some, some habitat stuff, too. But it was primarily Recreational? Overfishing. It was recreational and commercial. 
I mean, recreational is the bigger part of the problem today. Like recreational anglers actually put a hurt on that fish. Big time. I mean, commercial did too. But, you know, today 70% of the, you know, the fish that are caught are caught by or, or killed or are killed by recreational anglers. God, really? Yeah. I mean, that's how popular the fish is. I always run around telling people that like regulated recreational fishing is negligible. Well, I mean, regulated is the key word there. Got and it. we just didn't do what we needed to do at that time to regulate it properly. And until it was too late, then we had a full ass moratorium on commercial and recreational harvest for years. And was it because people are killing big females? Is it, that was certainly part of the problem. Yeah. And you have a big female, a 40 or 50 pound female can lay, I forget, a million eggs or something. I mean, they are incredibly fecund. And, uh, but we were, you know, starting to lose them. And also you're, you're killing, you know, you're just killing too many fish, period. And even catch and release, you know, we are far better today at, you know, surviving, you know, knowing how to do that properly without huge, you know, impacts. I mean, if you're, if you're using live bait, you know, with treble hooks, you know, and you're letting the fish swallow it, you're not going to release that fish, even if it's below the slot limit or you want to, you've already caught your limit for the day, that fish is going to die. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, they've, they've, there've been a lot of advancements in, you know, basically more reducing mortality, but the species has still been in basically steady decline for the past 20 years. Still and, now. Yeah. And the last management action that was taken was taken in 2003 or 2004. And that was what they call amendment six to the striped bass plan. And that's been intact till today, and basically it's been you know, in place as we've been watching this steady decline. And so yeah, finally this year, in fact, just this past month. Is the month, decline in total numbers, is the, the decline in like numbers of large, sexually mature fish? Total numbers at this point. Okay. So, but there are different management triggers they look at to determine, you know, how whether overfishing is occurring, you know, they do stock assessments, they do young of the year indices in the key spawning areas, you know, so overall they will look at those and that determines whether, you know, the stock is okay or whether it's, you know, being overfished. And right now we've been in a, a constant state of overfishing. So the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which is the, you know, basically the body made up of all the states on the Atlantic coast, you know, finally adopted last month something called Amendment 7, which dramatically changes how we're going to be managing striped bass. It makes it much better for conservation. Now, rubber is going to hit the road in October when we have the stock assessment this year. We didn't get stock assessments during the pandemic mm -hmm. because they weren't out doing it. And so we'll actually sort of see how bad it is come October. And if it's really bad, you're going to see a whole bunch of triggers put in place to reduce mortality. Give me a preview. Well, we've already had certain things done last year, like requiring circle hooks on live bait, you know, because the, mm -hmm. you know, again, that treble hook is not good for catch and release. Um, but, you know, what it could be is, you know, I mean, it's, it gets pretty wonky pretty fast, and you can go on our website and read all about this. But, for example, there is something called conservation equivalency, which means that in a place like the Chesapeake Bay, which doesn't have as big fish much of the year, they allow you to catch fish that are much smaller and keep some because there simply aren't that the slot isn't in there, you know, when people are fishing in the summertime. And that's been abused over the years. So they're finally going to, if you're, if it continued overfishing is occurring, that goes away. Uh, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. Mm -hmm. They have a slot limit. Yeah. But then guys are like, dude, I'm not catching one that I can keep. Well, if you're in the Chesapeake Bay, I mean, those fish that are in the slot have moved out in the summer. 
And they're up and in so based on Cape like Cod. based on angler feedback, they're doing right. an adjustment. Yeah, like, so like the, the, the well, sort of like never mind the slot. We'll yeah, say. never mind the slot. You guys get to have a different you know management regime down here to allow people to fish. Got you. And we're just killing way too many fish. And so you know if we if it's decided that overfishing is still occurring come October in the stock assessment, then you know that is going to go away. So yeah, tough. I mean we just can't kill small fish. Can I share with you three quick striped bass? Go for it. Things. Uh, I spent several months in San Jose, California, one time when I was working on a book. And I had a, I would call him my fake Uncle Don, because he was like not even, he was sort of a relative, like a step, seemed like an uncle, but he wasn't even kind of close to my uncle. Anyways, he would take me out trolling in San Francisco Bay for striped bass. And he would troll so close to the San Quentin. You know who was in there at that time? Was it? Remember that guy that took his wife out? Says he took her out sturgeon fishing. Yeah. Killed her and sunk her down <laughs> to the bottom of the bay. Vaguely. Well, he was in there. Lord knows who else. We would troll so close to the guard tower at San Quentin that we'd wave to the guards and catch them good. Oh, yeah. And in the upper Delaware, I used to go fish the upper Delaware. Mm hmm. Uh, way up where it's like Pennsylvania, New York. Yeah, Hancock, that area. Yeah. East and the West Branch come together. You're catching trout, right? Like, oh, there's yeah. like rainbows and browns. I, I, in there. I was, that's where I was fly fishing two weeks ago. Well, sometimes you, you've probably seen this happen. I'd be in my canoe. You know, you're catching like rainbows, smallmouths, whatever. And all of a sudden, like you'd look down in some hole and just stripers as long as your leg. Oh, yeah. And I, like, I didn't know because I was new to the area. I didn't know that that was a thing. And I'd be like, you know, normally you see something like that. You're like, oh, it must be a carp, right? Like something like that big, but they're fast. And I was like, what in the, I thought I discovered a new species. Oh, and yeah. Someone's like, no, dude, striped bass will come all the way out of the ocean and come up here. So the Delaware is the and longest. This is like a trout stream. It's the longest stretch of undammed river in the eastern United States. So all the way from south of Philadelphia up to upstate New York. I thought I was hallucinating until yep. I figured, until someone explained what I was looking at. Yep. Well, they ever hit in that kind of stuff? Oh, sure. I can't even imagine. Oh, I've got friends that target them. Yeah. I can't imagine. There aren't that many that stay up there, but the ones that get up there are often like, you know, I may not go back out of the ocean because there are all these tasty little <laughs> trout in here. Oh, just yeah. incredible, man. My final one is this dude my brother Danny used to work with was in Connecticut, and he took me out one night, and uh, I don't know what the hell river it was. Um. We wait out in the river like the darkest night imaginable. And you can't, you can't, I can't tell anything that's going on. You can just see the house lights. And we're standing in a river like, you know, up to your crotch in some river. I can't see. We got there in the dark. No idea what's going on. And he's like, just cast out there, you know. And I'm like, this is the stupidest thing in the... Like, <laughs> this would never work. It, boom! Oh, yeah. One of those things hits in the dark. Dude, that was amazing, man. Yeah, and that's the time to that fish it cool out there. a cool fish. Because, you know, the, Long Island Sound around there is, you know, there's a lot of people. And you go during the day, there are people everywhere. And you get out there at night on these little coastal rivers or flats. Yeah, we're right in the mouth of a river. Yeah, I mean, you have, you, first of all, there's nobody around. And, you know, the, fit, the fish come in. And this, they fish, they hit better at night than they do in the daytime anyway. Generally. Yeah, it's so dark when you cast, like yeah. cast that plug. You couldn't even, like, the plug just sort of vanished into the yeah. darkness. Like, you have no idea, like, where you right. cast. <laughs> no, I did that for years, yeah, and uh, I'd love that. Oh, he was hooked. Yeah. I thought it was a riot, yep. man, but 
you, you know you get that feeling like i don't know what you got going on but there's no way this like you can't catch fish like this yep. this doesn't work like this <laughs> so anyway i think that the future is finally looking a little bit brighter for striped bass and hopefully we can stem this decline and start a recovery now there are other things that are working against it you know from you know Maybe the Chesapeake Bay isn't as productive as it used to be mm-hmm. due to climate, getting a little warmer. How much, how much pushback uh, do they anticipate from fishermen? Very little. Really? So right now, I mean, all the, and this is one of the cool things about this process, basically the entire recreational community you know, is on board with you know, taking very strong steps for conservation, you know, which is a change. And I mean, listen, well, I'll take a little credit for that because you know, we helped assemble the coalition of AS, American Sport Fishing Association, Coastal Conservation Association, Congressional Sportsmen's Foundation, National Marine Manufacturers, others, to make sure that we were all on the same page. Because, you know, there are other groups who, you know, are going to be good on this, but, you know, our community, especially like the industry, you know, just hates the thought of, you know, fewer people on the water and, you know, less economic activity. But I think everybody finally recognized that, if we don't take some steps now, it's going to give you, we're looking at another moratorium down the road mm. and that helps nobody. You know, it, that's in people's memory. Yep. Oh yeah. Vivid. Gotcha. How do they do these uh, counts? So, you know, I don't know how they do the stock assessments. They do young of the year indices in the Chesapeake Bay and the Hudson river, which are the two main spawning areas for striped bass. And they have certain areas they go to all the time and, you know, they see, you know, basically, you know, this time of year, they'll go in and do surveys or a little bit later about the young because they'll come up there, you know, the striped bass, like in DC, will swim all the way up the Potomac past DC and spawn. And they, you know, come up there in that, you know, February, March, you know, time frame, And then spawn, the little guys come out and there are certain areas where the little ones tend to congregate where you can go and do little sane surveys and, you use the same methodology year to year, you come up with some pretty good trend lines over time. Yeah. And they've been bad trend lines of late. Hmm. And we also have things like, you know, blue catfish are now in the Chesapeake, which tend to love to eat little stripers. Mm. And that's an invasive species that was never there before. So, and people in the Chesapeake Bay aren't used to whacking them, even though they're great eating and, you know, good game fish. But so they're out there and they're relatively unmolested, except for they're doing a lot of molesting of striped bass. So people got to start keeping blues. Oh, big time. Hit them, hit them hard. That's some good eating fish, too. People mm-hmm. like to look down on the old catfish, but... Delicious. Yeah. Yep. Clean it up right and fish fry it. Yeah, especially uh, if it's been eating striped bass and yeah, instead of exactly. like hanging out the sewer system outfall. Another question for you for the recovering America's wildlife. Are there other... Are there non-hunting, non-sportsman groups that are... Uh, like chipping in, helping out, pushing for it. Oh, absolutely. Like the butterfly lover groups. Absolutely. They yeah, the environmental good. community is strongly behind it. I mean, this is another one where there is really no separation between our, yeah, what we want, what the environmental community want, what's the, yeah. So everybody who cares about wildlife wants this to happen. When you're in a meeting um, and there's a lot of different wildlife interests in the room, including a lot of people who are probably like instinctively adversarial to the hunting and fishing community um are you guys just all business oh yeah and honestly there aren't that many groups i mean there's some PETA, humane society they don't deal in federal policy they don't no they're much more comfortable you know throwing fake blood on somebody wearing a fur or something like that so i mean they're not involved in these negotiations and you know honestly groups like sierra club supports hunting 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't make a big, you know, but but but, but like that. a group like a group like PETA does it. The, I never thought about that. They don't get. They're not a federal policy group. I mean, maybe they do in some places, but no, we've never bumped into them. Got it. Um, but you know, so we work really close to groups like Audubon. Yeah, yeah, which uh, are, they're probably uh, like pretty agnostic to it. No, right? honestly, they're they're fine with hunting. I mean, they're just about good management. And you know, so we've worked with them a ton on sage grouse, on infrastructure, on a variety of other things. And they got great staff. They have you know long proud tr- tradition. They have good chapters. Mm-hmm. And you know, some members of Congress would rather hear from Audubon. Some would rather hear from the Boone and Crockett Club. Got you. Uh, do you feel that? the recovering america's wildlife act if if we if it doesn't get done before midterms it's just all the hubbub of midterms going to kind of just i mean will it just so never come be, up again so yeah so basically we have a working period between now and i would guess august recess after the august recess nothing's going to happen basically until after the election after the election there after could the be, midterm after the midterm yep and then there'll be like another little bit there, of activity. There could be a lame duck session, but that all depends on you know, what's happened in the election. So it's time. The time to do this is now. I think so. Yeah. I mean, listen, we've got the wind at our back right now. We've you know we've got had Great American Outdoors Act. We just got Mapland. We've had you know the America's Conservation Enhancement Act. We have a variety of other things that are pushing through that we have managed to get done. And I really feel that you know momentum's on our side. We got to use that. Uh, to close out, explain to people, and you've explained it before, explain to people um, the uh, unexpected goodness of of times of inflamed part- partisanship. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, I mean, listen, it's not, D.C. in general is not a fun place to be in these days, especially if you're a member of Congress and you want to do the right thing. But in this very broken system we're in, it turns out that our issues tend to be ones that you know folks can come together on. You know, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives, and uh, you know. So, in, in most members of Congress, I maybe I'm a little Pollyannic on this, are there for the right reasons. They want to do public policy. They want to make a difference. They want to do what's right. And uh, we're giving them things that you know Republicans, Democrats can support. They're good on the ground. Yeah, they can be proud of for multiple reasons, from hunting and fishing to climate to access, and you know we've you know we're just in a sweet spot right now. Like if they want to have some win, yeah, they can often Every, turn to conservation. Everybody issues. wants a win, and uh, you know, and these are ones that, and honestly, you know, I think that you know our community is is the perfect messenger on this stuff because, yeah, okay, the community tends to lean conservative, lean Republican. But at the end of the day, they're pragmatists, and you know they care about you know conservation. They care about maintaining, you know, basically the best conservation system in the world that we have in this country, and you know that requires you know Democrats, Republicans, and what we're trying to do is conservation that is durable, that does not depend on having a Democrat or Republican in the White House or in the House of Representatives or in the Senate. These things make sense regardless of what party's in power. And if we maintain that, we're true to that, then, I mean, you were at our dinner, you emceed our dinner last week, and we always honor one Republican, one Democrat, some even the private sector. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is the whole theme that there's plenty of... And quite things. often that private sector individual is 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 an industry, you know, someone oh, yeah, from... Oh, yeah, yeah. This year it was Ben Special, the head of, you know, Yamaha Marine. 
and Yamaha has done unbelievable things for and conservation. And you honored a, yeah. someone from a, the beer industry. Yep, yep. New Belgium the year before that. And I mean, it runs the gamut. But, you know, the whole point but someone is... Like, like someone from the corporate world who's running a great business, yep. running a profitable business, but keeping in mind... Yeah, we, I, we work a lot with corporate America, and but we try to identify the leaders in each of the sectors and not just, you know, Patagonia and REI, but... You know, we work a lot with Shell Oil because I think they're by far the most conservation-minded, progressive of the big oil companies. Mm-hmm. And listen, oil and gas is going to be here for a long time in the future, even if we get to a much more carbon-free society. I mean, my truck's only two years old. I mean, I'm going to be driving it for a long time, I hope. Mm-hmm. And uh, But we want to work with companies that really have a commitment to doing the right thing. And you know, that's sometimes harder than other times. But you know, like Ben Special at Yamaha, that's an easy one. I mean, they have walked the walk for a long time now. But I was going to say, I mean, there is plenty to disagree about in D.C., but these issues, hunting, fishing, conservation, should not be one of them. Yep. All right, everyone. Whit Fosberg from TRCP. If you like uh, Wit's Approach. TRCP.org. Yeah, if you like Wit's Approach and you like the kind of projects TRCP works on, tell, tell them how to go find more. Yeah, just uh, go to our website. Uh, this is pretty wonky, but we try to boil it down so it's uh, understandable for the layperson. And uh, you know, become an activist. Your membership is free. If you want to give us a little money in exchange for something, we'd love to have it. Um, but you know, you'll get those updates weekly of what's happening in D.C., and you'll have plenty of opportunities to weigh in yourself. And uh, TRCP.org. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need, and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear.